Will you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you so much for your scriptures, for the story, and for the opportunity you give us to to open your word in community with one another. God, as we open your word, we ask that you give us ears to hear what you have for us. And God, I ask that you would take my words and that you would use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So last Sunday, we, we, we ended in this place in the story where, where Samuel had heard God's voice in Eli's temple. And this morning, we're, we're kind of skipping ahead a bit. One of the challenges of the story is we're running through uh, scripture at kind of a lightning speed phase. So we're going to talk through all of King David's story today. And there's, there's quite a bit, quite a bit there. So this morning we're skipping ahead a bit to a place where, where, uh, that the Israelites had, had been kind of led back toward the Lord under Samuel's leadership often. But if you're following along in the story toward the end of last week's chapter, we see that the people, they clamored for a king. They, they, they wanted a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. And God grants them that request. Samuel anoints an unlikely king named Saul. And for a while, Saul finds God's favor and he, he leads from that place. He leads well. But then he has a, a fall from grace. God commands him to do one thing and he doesn't quite follow through. He doesn't quite follow through on all that God had asked of him. And then we got to the passage that, that Daryl read earlier, where David is called to be Judah's next king, and eventually he becomes Israel's king as a whole. With both Saul and David, we see a, a, a pattern. And that pattern is uh, where they, they stumble, they, they fail to fully live into their God-given identity. And their examples show us that when we run away from what God has called us to be, we fall or we fail to live into the identity that God has given us. That we run away from the challenges that are in front of us, we fail to live into the identity that God has given us. At the heart of David's call is a story that many of us are familiar with, the story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath. David, the youngest and least physically fit of Jesse's sons, is anointed by Samuel when he's a young boy. And then he kind of continues his role as, as a shepherd. And that all changes when there's a battle between, between Israel and the Philistines. Uh, one of my favorite authors, one of my favorite storytellers, I should really say, is a, a guy named Malcolm Gladwell, and he's written plenty of books and articles and hosts a fascinating podcast called Revisionist History. Uh, if you listen to podcasts, I highly recommend listening to it. Um, but he's got a way of, of researching. He's got a way of researching, of, of kind of connecting dots and, and uh, opening a view that we might not first see. And, and one of his most well-known books is on the story of, of David and Goliath. And when he's telling the story, he, he says this, What the Israelites saw from high on the ridge was an intimidating giant. In reality, the very thing that gave the giant his size was also the source of his greatest weakness. There's an important lesson in that for battles with all kinds of giants. The powerful and the strong are not always what they seem. David came running toward Goliath, powered by courage and powered by faith. Goliath was blind to his approach. And then he was down. 
too big and slow and blurry-eyed to comprehend the way the tables had been turned. Gladwell approaches the story of David and Goliath and, and points out the place where David, the, the young shepherd, was, was prepared and Goliath, the battle-tested giant, was not. Earlier in my office this morning, we were, we were joking that the, the Chargers and Patriots game starts in 15 minutes. We, we, we talked about putting it up on the, on the screen because it's a story of David versus Goliath. And, and John, John says, while we're sitting in my office, he says, oh, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, the Patriots, they're Goliath. They're going to rely on their history. They're going to definitely win. I'm from San Diego. I have a long history and disdain for the Patriots. Sorry, Patriots fans. Um, but this, the story of, of, of David and Goliath, Malcolm Gladwell kind of turns it on its head and says, look, David was nimble and quick because he wasn't wearing the armor that didn't fit him that Saul tried to give him. That David didn't carry the sword that he had never been trained to use that Saul tried to give him. Instead, he carried the sling that he had used out in the fields as a shepherd. He used stones. They were, they were tools he was used to using. And Goliath was an accomplished warrior. But he was trained in up-close, hand-to-hand combat. He didn't know what to do with a, a quick opponent who was slinging stones from a distance. There's an argument, and I think it's a good argument to be made, that David, not Goliath, had the upper hand, had the advantage. And that's the angle that that, that Gladwell takes. As David turns toward Goliath, he steps into his God-given identity. He actually runs into his God-given identity. His entire life had prepared him for that moment. Being a youngest brother, I mean, think about all the battles he had with his older brothers. That he had to stand up for himself. Being the youngest brother, being a shepherd, where he grew up in the hills using a, a, a sling. It all led him to this moment. But it also prepared him for for much more than being a supposed underdog to Goliath. It also prepared him to step into his role later as Israel's king. Israel's people were divided. Some of them were were ready to follow David. Some of them were still following Saul, even after Saul died. And then in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we're told that, that David finally enters Jerusalem. Now, yesterday, while I was, I was kind of pouring over my sermon and, and preparing for, for this morning, I, I, I turned and read beyond the story. So the story skips a bunch of what's in, in the Bible. And I said, I'm, I'm going to see what, what we're, we're not seeing in the story. And, and read 2 Samuel chapter 5. And there we, we read the story of David entering into Jerusalem for the first time. And I was reminded of a, a, a trip that I went on last year. Most of you know that I went to, to Israel this last year. Um, and, and, and there's a, a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. We're told that the day that David entered Jerusalem, he said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites, the Jebusites were a people who were constantly tormenting the Israelites and who had one of the first kings in all of Israel. So David says that anyone who enters the Jebusites will have to enter through the water shaft. Through, through the water shaft into what we now know as the ancient city of, of David. And, and David and his army go through the water shafts and then they take up residence in the fortress 
calling it the city of David. That's a, a video of my uncle walking through um, some of the water shafts that were discovered in the late, uh, mid to late 1800s and that have been there thousands of years. Now, they're probably not the exact same tunnels that David and his men walked through. We know that later other kings of Israel also dug additional tunnels as well. But it was pretty fun and pretty eerie to, to walk through these, these tunnels. And so I'm reading through our scripture and I'm saying, oh, remember, remember that Indiana Jones moment you had in, in Israel when, when, when you were walking through, through those tunnels? David becomes king when he's 30, so he enters the city when, when he's 30, and for a long time he leads really, really well. He, he approaches the challenges on his path head on. He runs toward them. He doesn't run away from the anointing that God has placed on him, from the person that God has called him to be. But that all changes with the story that we also know well, the story of, of Bathsheba. It's another one of David's stories that, that, that we all, David and Goliath and, and David and Bathsheba are probably the, the two most well-known stories of David. He looks out his window, right? Sees a beautiful woman bathing on, his, on her roof and has her brought to his personal quarters. And after her visit, we're told that Bathsheba is pregnant. And then David begins his plan to get rid of her husband, Uriah eventually sending him to the front lines of a battle where he's sure to be killed. At the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read this. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We we see a, a different person here than we do with the shepherd who's running toward Goliath. We see a different side of David here. His fall from grace starts as he looks out his window. But, but looking out his window wasn't, wasn't sinful in itself, right? He's, he's probably looking over his city and thinking, what's next? Where, where are we going? How can I lead? What's, what's coming for, for these people that I'm, I'm called to lead? How can we advance the kingdom? And it wasn't like Bathsheba was out parading herself around for, for everyone to see either. She's following the, the Torah law, cleansing herself on her roof before going inside her home. One thing led to another. Looking out the window innocently led to seeing a beautiful woman, which led to infidelity and eventually to murder. David may have thought he was redeeming himself or or somehow making things better by by honorably marrying this woman, waiting until she was done mourning and then marrying her. But Scripture doesn't doesn't tell us that, that God is displeased, this last sentence, that God is displeased with what David has done until after he takes her as his wife. It's as if God treats the whole sequence from, from rooftop to pregnancy to murder and marriage as, as one event. The reality is this, this whole story, the whole story of David and Bathsheba is, is a story about power dynamics where someone with authority takes advantage of someone who has little to no power. 
With the way Second Samuel tells the story, Bathsheba had no say at all in what happens. David's the king. She's a common woman, vulnerable, just because she was following her, her culture's customs. Now, a simple but very important lesson for us in this part of the story is that it displeases God when people in power take advantage of those who they're called to lead or those who they're called to serve. It says it right there in Scripture. The story continues when one of David's trusted advisors, who's also a prophet, shows up. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Nathan tells a parable. He, he, he tells a parable, and in the same way that the disciples, Jesus' disciples, don't always understand what he's talking about when he tells parables, King David doesn't quite get all that Nathan is talking about here. Now, now David is drawn in as, as, as Nathan contrasts a, a selfish, wealthy man with a, a man who has nothing except for his, his prized young sheep. And we should also take notice here that, that Nathan's parable has nothing to do with adultery and nothing to do with murder. But it does highlight the power dynamics I was talking about earlier. And by the, by the time Nathan finishes, David is furious. We read, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel. I gave your master's house to you. I gave you all Israel and all Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's at that moment that he gets it and says, Oh, oh. Nathan explains the parable in, in, in great detail, including the consequence of what's, what's coming David's way because of his actions. And as he does, the lights go on in David's head. He sees that he's abused his place of privilege, that he's taken advantage of the vulnerable, and, and more than anything, that he's failed to live into the identity which God has called him to live into. 
Now, in the same way that today's underdog stories have similarities to David and Goliath, today's stories of of failed leadership and falls from grace have parallels to David and Bathsheba. And whenever something like what, what happens with David and Bathsheba happens today, it's hard, at least for me, to not assume the worst. More often than not, when I hear about a a pastor who takes advantage of someone who's in his or her congregation, or a a leader who tears apart his family because of something, uh, adultery or some other reason, it's, it's hard for me not to assume the worst. We've seen a lot of, of big name pastors fall from grace over the last few years. And while I don't know what's really said behind closed doors, Whenever I read their their public apologies, it's hard to not assume that the only reason they're showing remorse is because they've been caught. But that doesn't appear to be the case here with David. Who has caught David up to this point that we know about? Nathan. Nathan. He knows he's caught. David knows he's caught. That he was wrong. He owns his sin. And he mourns the consequences that come with his sin. Now a lot of the language that he uses in his Psalms lead us to believe that he doesn't gloss over his own brokenness. He owns his brokenness. He goes in some of his Psalms from writing about God's favor where he he gives thanks for all that God has given him to writing some incredibly dark and brutally honest words. So we find phrases like this from Psalm 38. Your arrows have pierced me, and your hand has come down on me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too too heavy to bear. And like this, reflecting on what happened with Bathsheba from Psalm 51. Against you, against you and you only have I sinned and and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I've been sinful since birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Ouch! Do those words make you feel, they make me feel uncomfortable. The consequences of his actions are, are severe. They they affect everyone around him, not just him. From the country he leads, to his children, to the rest of his family. And at least he appears to be (laughs) aware of that reality. During the rest of his reign as Israel's king, he continues to face adversity, even after this kind of, oh, I blew it. He continues to efface adversity, but he approaches it from a very, very different angle. There's still plenty of challenges, plenty of temptation to take advantage of the vulnerable, plenty of opportunities to to flex his power and to forget what God had given him. But his failure changes him. And even more importantly, experiencing God's grace challenges him to live in a different way. Now there's a, a lot that happens in David's life between the time that, that he's anointed as king and when he actually becomes king. And there's a lot that happens in both his own life during that time as well as in Israel's history during his 
40-year reign. The two stories we, we hear about most often, the story of David and Goliath and the story of David and Bathsheba, don't paint a complete picture of him, but they do show us two different sides of who he was. One where he hears God's call and steps into his God-given identity. And when he's in that place, he, he runs toward the challenge that's in front of him. And one where he forgets his identity, takes advantage of the people he's been entrusted to lead, and runs from what God has given him. Now, we might not face those exact same extremes in our own lives, but we do have to answer the same sort of questions that David had to answer. Will we run toward what what God's called us to do, or will we run away from it? Will we listen to what God has for us, or will we ignore it? Will we approach the challenges that are in front of us, recognizing that the grace that we've been given, or will we fall? Those are questions that we we see from David's life that that you and I can learn from, that you and I should be asking ourselves all the time. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask that you'd give us courage and strength. The courage and strength that's, that's needed to live into the identity that you have given us. Help us to be a people who focus on you and what you have for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.